Well, we've come to that point in our service where we take out our Bibles and rally around the truth. Uh, we are going to pause in our study of the book of Hebrews today, just today. Um, and I did that because we've celebrated Thanksgiving just uh, uh, this past Thursday. And with that still fresh on our minds and the fellowship dinner waiting for us this afternoon, I wanted to take advantage of this time to deepen your appreciation for this most holy endeavor that we are calling Thanksgiving. And I don't mean the American holiday. Uh, I'm referring to what it means to be thankful Christians. And that's what I want really to focus our attention on this morning. Let me say that gratitude is something that I'm sure you know is lacking in our American culture, especially among our young people. Children are not inclined to be thankful, much less return thanks. Entitlement is really the spirit of the age. To think that we deserve all that we have and more. It's really ingratitude and pride that characterizes many in our country, and that posture has bled into the church. There's no respect for leadership, no submission to authority. Many walk around with ungrateful looks on their face, wondering, why me? or angry over their lot. And I have to say, I've met many angry Christians in the span of my ministry. They lack joy. And that's a serious problem, as I'll show you in just a few moments. What else I have to say about biblical praise, you might find, well, just to be radical. So, um, to, uh, to understand just how serious praise is, I think we need to hear from the Apostle Paul this morning. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm focusing on just really one verse there. It's verse 20. And Paul calls us there to give thanks always for everything to God and, the, and Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks always and for everything to God and to our God and Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here in this one verse, we have the context, the concern, the content, the occurrence, the channel, and the command of praise. How do you like that? Hopefully, you'll remember all this. Uh, so, let's look at these one at a time. First is the context of praise. Now, Paul communicates to us something about praise from the context, really, of the Old Testament. And it's a rich context. As you know, Paul himself was steeped in the Old Testament. He grew up learning it. He mastered it as a Pharisee. And Paul was not your average Pharisee. He, as he himself testified to the Corinthians. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. We talked about that this morning. He gives his testimony on this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. That's quite a statement. It would be an understatement for us to say that Paul knew the Old Testament well. So when he speaks of concepts regarding the faith, he often brings to it this rich Old Testament flavor. Of course, his perspective on any aspect of the faith that's rooted in the Old Testament 
had been more complete than that of his Old Testament forefathers because he lived, remember, under the, old, under, under the New Covenant. So he had a better understanding of the Old Testament in light of the new revelation that he received personally from Jesus Christ himself. Uh, you could say then that Paul always came at the issues of faith with a holistic view, a biblically holistic view, and he could speak to issues from the whole counsel of God. So having said that, we could be sure that when Paul refers then to this important and sacred practice of praise without defining it, he was thinking of the exuberant expression of public praise that the remnant gave at the temple in Old Testament times. Maybe you've never thought of that. To support that, I want you to notice Paul just finished mentioning in verse 19 hymns or psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see that? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which, by the way, are all technical terms in the Psalter for psalms. And the fact that we're to sing them to each other points to the Old Testament practice of antiphonal singing in the worship services. You might be wondering, antiphonal singing, what's that all about? Encyclopedia Britannica defines antiphonal singing this way. It says, quote, alternate singing by two choirs of singers. The antiphonal singing of the Psalms occurred both in ancient Hebrew and early Christian liturgies. Alternating choirs would sing half lines of Psalm verses, end quote. I chose uh, Britannica specifically because it mentions uh, the practice of, uh, of the Old Testament, singing the Psalms in this fashion. The structure of the Psalms actually attests this practice. So I say again, Paul had a fully developed understanding of praise that was rooted in the Old Testament. Now let me give you the basic Old Testament view of praise and its importance in the faith of God's saints in order to show you what Paul was thinking uh, when he said, praise God. We start with the most common Hebrew word for praise, and I know many of you have heard me talk about this before. The word is kavod. That's the Hebrew word for praise, kavod. It's also the same word for thanks, and both have to do with glorifying God. How do we glorify God? Isn't God already glorious? Isn't he the one that glorifies us? So let me explain this. The Hebrew word kavod has the idea of weightiness, to make heavy. And this term is used in a literal sense in Old Testament contexts of weights and measures. It was the area where one determined the value of something with scales and weights. So you put the object to be valued on one side of the scale and a number of different weights on the other, and when the scale was balanced, you had the value of what was being weighed. It was out of this practice that weight referred to something substantial. And something substantial meant that it was valuable. Eventually, the word heavy was used figurative, figuratively to describe something of worth. And when someone spoke of making God's name heavy... He was talking about revealing the value of God 
the value of his name, his character, his reputation to others. And this is what it means then to praise God or glorify him. It is to make his name and his character and his reputation weighty or substantial in the eyes of others. So Old Testament believers praise God in the midst of the assembly in order to magnify the value of God's character in the minds of their fellow covenant members. They would reveal the significance of God's greatness to others in the assembly by letting them know exactly what God had done in their lives. Praising is all about spreading God's reputation around, boasting to others of his great work. And this is why the Old Testament practice of praising God always culminated in the assembly. It was important, you see, to tell everyone about God's great acts of mercy and grace, always in the assembly. But it goes without saying that praise, then, was a serious matter to any champion of Yahwism was a necessary condition of life for the Hebrew. It was death, so to speak, for him not to praise God. The covenant member of God's people would never think of receiving anything from God without returning thanks. To do so would constitute an act of pride. Not to praise God was just plain sinful. If a believer was not praising God, it meant that he wasn't enjoying God's benefits. If, as the psalmist says, God loads his people daily with benefits, both spiritually and materially, then God's will for that person is to return thanks. When the psalmist called for their fellow Hebrews to praise God, they called them to a spontaneous rejoicing over that which came from the hand of their great God. C.S. Lewis gets right to the heart of the Hebrews' mindset regarding praise in his work, Reflection on the Psalms. And in this work, he explains that a person naturally will praise that which he appreciates. And in fact, his praise at that moment is part of the enjoyment. And this is because Lewis, as Lewis elaborates, to enjoy something fully one must speak of it. And in the context of church, enjoying God translates into praising him. As the catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Thus, when the Bible enjoins us to praise the Lord, it means that we are to revel in him and his benefits. Also, by praising in public, the worshiper would also be sharing the wonderful benefits with others rather than hoarding them to himself. When others hear what God had done in their lives, they rejoice and they come to see that they see their God with new eyes. It's a fact, according to Psalm 30, verse 9, that it was a Hebrew's greatest fear to die and not be able to praise God in the midst of the assembly. Listen to uh, Psalm 30, verse 9. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Uh, by the way, uh, we talked earlier in the first hour about lament psalms and about how the lamenter would give reasons in his petition for God to deliver him. This would be a reason. If I die, my voice is silenced, 
And that's one less person in the assembly giving you praise, O God. Now think about that for a moment. The reason the psalmist asked God to save him from death was so that he could continue praising him. Now, we could think of a number of other reasons why we would want to continue living, couldn't we? But for God's champion, the number one reason was that he could continue to praise. To silence him by death, again, would mean one less voice to praise in the assembly of his great God. What a position that is. It's no surprise that we find praise emphasized then in different ways all throughout the Old Testament. For example, it was so important that to, to Israel that they had two types of praise, praise psalms in the Psalter. They had the declarative praise psalm and they had the descriptive praise psalm. The Psalter alone uses eight major words for praise. Hallelujah is one of them. King David instituted worship guilds just to lead the assembly in praise. There are key passages in Chronicles that show where David instituted public praise formally in the worship of the temple through musical guilds that were at the disposal of the Levites, and that the Levites were entrusted with the task of leading the assembly in worship and praise of God. We might say that because blessing of God upon his covenant worshipers was an expression of his loyal love, his covenantal love, the worshipers praise in response, was essentially a public expression of his covenantal loyalty to God. This is why the psalmist could praise the Lord in the midst of his distress. Calamity didn't change God's covenant promises. Those promises were what the psalmist clung to in the midst of his tragedy. Now, there's more we could say, but I think the basic idea of praise and its importance for God's Old Testament saints is enough to give a good sense of where Paul was coming from. This is the context out of which Paul came. This Old Testament concept of praise is also, by the way, the New Testament concept of praise. And when Paul simply mentions praise in Ephesians 5.20, without any specific description or definition, we can be sure that, we've that what he had in mind was just what we've outlined. And when you tear apart this verse, Ephesians 5.20, you cannot help but understand praise this way because of the radical way it presents the practice of praise. I'm going to show you in just a few seconds here. With that said, let's, let's look at the rest of the components. We've, we've talked about the context of praise behind Ephesians 5.20. We now turn our attention to the concern of our praise, the concern. And by concern, I really mean uh, what our, or who our praise is concerned about. It concerns God. This is just a, another way of saying that God is the subject of our praise. We give thanks to our God and Father. God is the reason for our praise. He's the cause of our praise. Everything that we receive in life comes from his hand. He's the primary and ultimately cause of all that we receive in life. So Paul speaks of God as our Father in order to emphasize the benevolent aspect of God who continually does good to his spiritual children. James would say it in this way, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above 
and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So God gets the credit for all that we have, and we need to praise him for it. We must show him our gratitude for what he has given us, because he's the good sovereign. In David's praise to God in Psalm 16, he actually names God as his most precious precious gift. The Lord, he says, is my cup and my portion. How about that? The next component is the occurrence of praise. I know that that breaks with the seas, uh, but it, it, it sounds very much like a C word. So we've got occurrence of praise. When we do praise, when do we praise our Heavenly Father? When do we do that? Well, Paul says always. Always. You mean no matter what the circumstance? Yes, no matter what the circumstance. I told you this was radical. We find no exception here to the amount of times that we're to praise God. It's to be continual, like prayer. Remember, pray without ceasing, Paul said in another place. Paul told the the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything, we read it this morning, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. God's will for you certainly includes your continual praise of him. Now, it should be obvious that if praise is supposed to be continual, it's something that's not restricted just to outward circumstances. But it's very much an internal matter of the heart. I want to develop this a little bit with you. In other words, what I'm saying is that more than giving thanks or more than giving God thanks for specific contexts in our lives, which, of course, deserves our public praise, praise has to do also, and I would say firstly, with our attitude toward God regardless of our contexts. This is the only way it can be continual, always walking with a thankful heart to God. Why can we always be thankful? Because God has visited us with the gospel. He's saved us from a much-deserved condemnation. He's made covenant promises to us for a glorious inheritance, a better country. And until he fulfills that promise, he keeps other promises to us that help us to live our Christian lives well, never to desert us, giving us the helper, giving us spiritual gifts, fruits of the Spirit, an opportunity to represent him to the world as his ambassadors, wisdom for the asking. If we never gain one piece of what the world calls a successful life, it shouldn't matter because we have all we need in Christ and more is coming. This alone should make us continually grateful. Now keep in mind, beloved, the, the one who is so overjoyed with the salvation of the Lord cannot help but show it. Cannot help but show it. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Can people see our gratitude of God or for God? Would those who know us best, saved and unsaved alike, would they characterize us as grateful persons? They say, I don't know what happened in her life, but you could just tell she's so grateful to her God. We need to check our hearts to make sure that we're grateful and that we're continually grateful. 
not letting anything douse this. As far as our context in life, we can learn to thank God for them too, since everything that God gives us constitutes our lot. Everything. As I see it, our lot is comprised of three major contexts in which we're to praise the Lord. This is how I see it anyway. Three major contexts comprise our lot in life. Good times, bad times, and the anticipation of bad times. <laughs> now, it shouldn't be difficult a difficult thing to praise the Lord during good times. Praising only makes sense in this case. The only difficulty is to remember to do so. It's kind of a shame to say that, isn't it? It's rather an indictment on us. How could we forget? But of course, this was the warning that God gave the Israelites in the beginning of Deuteronomy before they were to take possession of the land. Do not forget who delivered you. He actually would go on to say that if they went on to enjoy, enjoy the land with ungrateful hearts, they would eventually think that they themselves were the ones that delivered themselves from the hand of Egypt. Now, we need to discipline ourselves to thank the Lord when we are on the receiving end of his blessings in our lives. And let me just say this, the quicker we are returning thanks, the less of a chance of forgetting to do so, and the greater the praise experience for us. You all know what it's like to pray to God out of the need of the moment. Well, how about praising the Lord at the very moment? Something that is pray, especially praiseworthy happens in your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, it's said in his biography, whenever he experienced a joyful moment, it could have even have been a thought that came upon him in his study that caused such such a, a warming of his heart because of his, because of his great God, he would push away from the desk and spend time praising the Lord during the experience rather than save it all at the end of the day. Be thankful to God during these wonderful contexts in life is, is easy. Being thankful to God when anticipating something bad happening is another context and maybe not so easy for us. Paul answers this, of course, for us in Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7, when he tells us, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God in the peace of God, which passes all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here Paul tells us how to deal with the future correctly by coming to God in prayer and petition. And we petition him for the desire of our heart with the confidence that, that what we're asking is God's will. The key phrase here is with thanksgiving. And the reason that we can be thankful during this time is simply because God will answer our prayer either in a way that we have asked it or in some other way, which would be far better. So either way, potential bad situation becomes a win-win situation for us. Perhaps the most difficult of all of these three in our lot is giving God praise in the midst of a severe trial. And yet, even here, our gratefulness to our good sovereign must shine through the dark clouds that loom over our heads, no matter how thick and how oppressive they may be. We have plenty of instances where God's saints sing praises to God in the midst of their severe persecution. 
persecution for their faith. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, right? Beaten and bloody, singing praises to their God. Peter and John, who also were beaten. They were beaten by the Sanhedrin for their evangelizing. Walk out praising and singing to God. Even Jonah expected God to deliver him from the belly of the fish. And in light of that, anticipated with joy the prospects of praising God in the assembly. This is what he said. In the belly of the fish, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. This is what he was thinking. This is what we're told. In the midst of his distress, in the belly of the fish, with all the weeds around his head. Now it's indeed erratical practice, praises, when we think that it's a binding responsibility of every believer that must be done always, regardless of the circumstances. And it gets even more radical when we discover, according to our verse, that we're to be praising God for everything. That's the next component, the content of praise. What are we to give God, when, what, for what, rather, are we to give God thanks? Well, in a word, everything. And that really seems to cap off this practice with an element of impossibility, doesn't it? It's hard enough to be thankful always, but for everything? Well, that's what it says. Everything here means Everything. Paul is very specific about this. Everything in life. And everything means both the tragedies as well as the triumphs. Now logically, hear me out here, logically this makes sense. You see, we have no doubt that God has determined our lot, right? We're convinced of that. Romans 8.28 specifically says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. All, in this verse, includes both the triumphs and the tragedies in our lives. All. So if God has ordained our lot, whatever it may be, and he has our good in mind, well, then it only makes sense that we should be thankful for everything that God deems necessary for our good. Right? How can we argue against that? Maybe you can appreciate it a bit more uh, appreciate a bit more the truth that this full-time occupation that we call praise really captures when um, when we, uh, we we examine the condition of our what the condition of our heart should be before God. Praise is about the condition of our heart before God. Spurgeon, writing on this subject, out of this very verse, in fact, said in 1873 from his pulpit in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, quote, Thanksgiving is the preface to a holy life, the foundation of obedience, and the vestibule of sanctity. He who would serve God must begin by praising God, for a grateful heart is the mainspring of obedience. End quote. If, uh, if that resonates with you, then what John MacArthur says will resonate with you even more. He says, quote, I believe being thankful is the single greatest act of personal worship a Christian can render to God. 
Thankfulness is the epitome of true spiritual worship. Worship does not necessarily require stained glass windows, organ music, or singing great hymns in the church, though those things may enhance it. The highest and ultimate act of worship is to possess a thankful heart, recognizing God as the source of everything. The ability to offer thanks in the midst of any situation, good or bad, is the ability to praise God. And a thankful heart sees beyond the difficult circumstances to the sovereignty of God. Thankfulness helps conform the believer to the image of Christ because it causes him to see God working out everything for the good regardless of the difficult circumstances, end quote. There are so many Christians I have met, beloved, in the counseling room that were not grateful to God for bringing them needed trials in their lives. This is a constant theme, a recurring theme. When situations didn't go their way, they became upset, even indignant and outraged. I've heard them swear over it, witnessed them pound my table, stomping out of the room, slamming the door on their way out, becoming indignant to the point of tears, turning five shades of red, all because they don't have what they want, or, to be more precise, they're not happy with what God has given them. No one ever taught them that if they're not happy with what God has given them, they are not satisfied in God himself. And that's why I really believe that praise is the litmus test of our spiritual demeanor. Shakespeare put an interesting response in the mouth of the main character, King Lear. In Act 4, the king says, In gratitude, Thou marble-hearted fiend, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Hmm. God doesn't want an ungrateful child either. There are all kinds of contexts and circumstances in life that we can become ungrateful over, and when we do, we're ungrateful ultimately to our God and Father. Now, if you have a feeling of inadequacy about being able to praise God always for everything, let me encourage you. There is a a very good reason why we can be thankful for everything that comes our way, and it's simply this. God is the one who brings it for our good to make us more like Christ. Keep in mind, we're not so much thankful for the tragedy in and of itself, right? We're not thankful for the pain for the broken hip, whatever it may be, but rather for how God is going to use it in our lives for our good to make us more like his son. Now, we're not thankful for the premature death of a loved one, which is probably as bad as it gets, but for how God will use that in our lives, again, to conform us to the image of his dear son, as King David himself has testified. And that's an important distinction to make. Let me hasten to the channel. Uh, We really don't need to say a whole lot about this. I think it's pretty obvious. It's in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. That's how we're to give God praise. Paul gives us the means by which we're to thank God always for everything, and that is in Jesus' name. He says, uh, in or by means of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And here we have further hope for all those who are born again when it comes to this very sacred, very precious, and vital aspect of the faith called praise. Only those in Christ can praise the Lord legitimately and rightly. No one outside of Christ can praise God in a way that God will accept because it amounts to really human works. And God abhors that. Only in Christ can such a sacrifice be rendered acceptable in God's sight. The name of Christ is what God knows and what he accepts. Then there is the command, finally. The command. I've saved this to the end. I could have introduced it at the beginning, which is uh, really the way that Paul introduces it. It is a command Paul gives it this way, give thanks, give thanks. I wonder if you ever considered returning thanks to God as a command, that it's not just something that we do only when we feel like it, as if we can go months without praising God because we're just not in the mood. No, we're commanded to praise the Lord, to be thankful and to walk with gratitude before the Lord continually. The command is certainly in the Old Testament. We can go to so many places. The Psalter perhaps is the best to highlight this. Bless our our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. But the command is repeated in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's the word again. Hebrew term kavod. Psalm 4 verse 6 Be anxious for nothing as we've read already, but in everything by prayer with supplication and thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. One classic passage that we are looking forward to getting to in our study of the book of Hebrews is Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, that is Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, that is the fruit of lips that gave thanks to his name. This is such a great verse on praise because it establishes two aspects of praise that often go unnoticed, one of which is that praise is a binding responsibility of every Christian. A binding responsibility. How are you doing with this responsibility? Is it an important part of your life? Is it as important or more important than work? Is it something you give full attention to and pursue, or do you leave it up to some kind of a force of habit? It happens when it happens, you know, like indigestion. Do you make praise evident to others? Do you see that you Live a life of gratitude. Second aspect of praise in this verse is worship. Praise is an act of worship. The writer calls it a sacrifice of praise. That's Old Testament terminology for worship. Now, what do you think about your praise habits in light of this? Would you deny God worship? Then you should be praising Him. Did you get a sense, again, of inadequacy in your practice of praise. If you did, again, let me encourage you. I read comments like this and others throughout our our, our, uh, our church history 
and I couldn't help but feel moved on the one hand, but terribly convicted myself on the other. We cannot help but say, I, I really don't praise God the way I should. I don't look forward to praising God in the assembly in quite the same way as the Old Testament saints did. They couldn't wait to get there to tell the assembly and to boast about God's great acts of saving grace, how he saved them from peril, delivered them from enemies, or how he blessed them. But there's hope for us, beloved. There's hope for us. Consider some of the implications of this command. It's really the same for all commands. First of all, it implies that praise is not something that comes so easy to us that we don't have to be concerned about. No, it is something that God expects us to work at. We need to work at being better at praising God. It also implies that we can obey this command since God has enabled us to obey his commands in the Holy Spirit. God never gives his, his own commands that they cannot keep. One more implication of this command is that if you're not good at whatever God is commanding you to do, then you can learn to be better at it. Commands can be learned. We need to learn how to live before the Lord and this world as grateful worshipers. How important is praise to you then? Is it evident to others around you? Does your life reflect a thankful heart? And these are right questions to ask, I think, about praise and how it should impact us as individual Christians. Let me close with just a word to the edifying effects, though, of our praise on the body as a whole. We've been talking about how it benefits us individually. Let's talk about the benefits to the body as a whole, because this is part a great part of the Old Testament context, praise in the assembly. Like everything in the Christian life, there is always a communal element to be considered, and it's equally as important as the individual element. After all, we belong to a body. Faith is never private. It is a public matter. Now, we've seen that we're called to praise God, and certainly that means we're we're to be displaying an attitude of thankfulness always for all things toward our great God. But it mustn't stop there. True, true praise must culminate publicly in the assembly. It must, if it is going to be genuine. The reason is because that kind of praise best glorifies God. The act of praising was never meant to be to be communion between the Lord and the worshiper only. God designed it to edify those who would hear the boast about him by a worshiper. Now here's how it works. Here's how praise benefits all involved, both the one praising, the one being praised, and the one hearing the praise. Just four things here. One, public praise gives God honor due him. So that, of course, I think is obvious since we're arguing that God is the concern or the subject of our praise and thanksgiving. Number two, praise, public praise edifies the hearers. They can rejoice with you when they hear your praise. They learn what God does in your life, and then they become very confident that God will also work in their lives as well. In other words, it cultivates in them the same trust in God 
that the one praising has. Number three, public praise also shows others how to praise. When those who are reluctant to praise in the assembly, and by the way, there is never any good reason not to praise God in the assembly, except the need to repent of any sin first, they will take their cue from those who praise publicly. They see how you do it. They say, oh, I can do that. And then they do. Which brings us to the fourth. Public praise will encourage others to praise God publicly. That's why it's so important that we read and sing the Psalms, by the way, in our worship services, as we do regularly. We need to expose ourselves to good praying and good praise. And when you're moved by the praise of the psalmist, keep in mind that you can not only do the same as well, but you can actually do a better job of it because you are a member of a better covenant with better promises and with the full revelation that they never had. How are you doing at it then? How are you measuring up? Ask the Lord to give you a thankful attitude that you might so live before the world that your actions will make your faith and your God attractive. Christian life is a superior life, beloved. And by that, I do not mean that Christians are better than everyone else in the world. Certainly not. As was pointed out earlier today, we are sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath, just like everyone else. But we are better off in the sense that we are in a better position because of what we've been given in Christ. If you realize that, then then joy and gladness will always be a glow in your heart. You will be grateful for your lot in life, as the psalmist says, the boundaries of my life have fallen in pleasant places. If you're a thankful Christian, then you'll be an obedient, spirit-filled Christian. Let's not forget the context in which Paul writes this verse. It's in the context of being spirit-filled. And a spirit-filled Christian is a thankful Christian. He finds the food of God's commands and principles good to the taste. He accepts trials as he would discipline from a loving father because he's convinced that they will produce a harvest of righteousness in him. He submits to those in authority over them, whether government, employers, spouses, parents, but especially leaders in the church whom God has placed over him and teaches the word of God to him. He understands and accepts mutual submission and encourages it between believers in the local church. He spurs others on to love and good deeds. What I'm saying is that if God has given you a new life in Christ, complete with all that is needed for life and godliness, and uses trials as a means to conform you to the image of his dear Son, you'll live that new life to the glory of God and dare not take any of it for your own pleasures and purposes. When we're not glorifying God with our lives, he asks, what's wrong? Are you not happy with what I've given you? It's the same principle operating in the life of a child who receives a brand new bike. He can say thank you upon receiving it, but if he never rides it or he doesn't take care of it or he's careless with it, then his expression of gratitude is really empty. 
Or take the girl who graduates high school and has her whole college paid for by relatives who are interested in her education. She, she thanks them profusely. But if she's lax in her study habits, gets poor grades because of it, and, and gets put on academic probation because of her antics, then her initial expression of gratitude is empty. We parents might want to think about how grateful we are to the Lord for giving us children before we mistreat them. And those of us who are married might want to think about the fact that God gave us our spouses before we mistreat them. And we might challenge our children when they treat us disrespectfully if they claim to know and love the Lord who gave us to them. More than this, remember that it's important to praise God in the assembly. We've built into our morning worship service at Pilgrim Church a time for the saints to give praise in the assembly for good reason. God requires it, but hopefully you desire it. So much of praying in the church today is impoverished because it's not done in a manner of thankfulness, genuine thankfulness. William Hendrickson said that when a person prays without thanksgiving, he has clipped the wings of prayer so that it cannot rise. Interesting. Let's be giving thanks always for everything to our God and Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.